I would have wanted to read this book 15 years ago. I would have wanted to read a book that sort of gave me permission to live in an in-between space and not have to worry about claiming one or the other. I would have wanted to read a book about how it's okay and maybe even understandable to have felt like you needed to put blackness on the side or Muslimness on the side or immigrantness on the side. Because I think I felt a lot of shame about that at the time. And now I'm like, oh, I was just doing the thing that I needed to do to make the day easier. I'm Nathan Maharaj, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is BuzzFeed culture writer Elamine Abdelmahmoud, whose voice listeners might recognize from the CBC podcasts, Party Lines, and Pop Chat. But he's on this podcast to talk about his new book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, in which he writes movingly of his relationship to his personal elsewhere, the Sudanese city of Khartoum, from which he came to Kingston, Ontario as a child. He also writes beautifully about his passion for country music and an affinity for the American South, as well as, and I wish I were kidding, but I'm not kidding, his love of the much maligned musical genre known as new metal. (laughs) we'll get to that what i'm trying to say is this book contains multitudes so does its author uh and i am so glad that he is joining me now on this show elamin abdel mahmoud welcome to kobo nathan thank you so much for having me it's a a pleasure to be here it's a pleasure to be the defense attorney for new metal um (laughs) it's it's not a gig that pays well i'll tell you that (laughs) it's a thankless job (laughs) for sure (laughs) The book, Son of Elsewhere, in the very first paragraph of the prologue, and this is what hooked me, you write, if you tell me you're an immigrant or child of immigrants, we're going to spend some time together because I will want to hear of the ways you've had to stretch yourself to find your footing. So my own father, he came from Durban, South Africa uh, in the 70s, Uh, shout out Trudeau immigration policies. Mm -hmm. And so I felt this book was calling out to me right from the start. Yes. Can you tell me, though, about how you came to embrace that love of these stories that people carry from their own elsewheres? Well, I mean, I just to put it into practice, I was about to ask you about how you feel about the difference between your first name and last name. Because your name, <laughs> Nathan Maharaj, is a fascinating combination of names. I was like, how did we end up here? And so there's, I think everywhere you kind of turn, there are people who have... Um, outward relationships with their history, where they come from. And sometimes that's represented in a name. Sometimes that's represented in a tattoo of a word that they can't really say, but they know what it means. Um, And I think all of us are sort of uh, interested in unearthing our own kind of pasts and, and, and how they connect it today. Like we have such a deep desire, I think all of us to maybe understand our own story by like asking our parents and saying, hey, how did you come to this place? Um, How did you come to name me this? What is your relationship to where you come from? And like so often it's like when you get those answers, then something in you calms down because you're like, now I understand a little bit more about how things ended up this way. And so I was like, do you want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about your name? Because I think we should do that. We could well. So, so funny. So we'll we'll do we'll do the digression on on my name, which yeah. is um, when I tell Indian people my last name is Maharaj. They're like, I always and, and I didn't understand this because it's a very South African Indian thing. Yeah. Our, our name our name when we left India was something else, and then and then we got to and, and that's why there are so many Maharajas. Mac Maharaj, member of the African National Congress. 
Yeah. There's a bunch of us there. We're not necessarily all related. But someone literally just stuck this name because they were like, this seems like it's an easier This way. is good enough. Yeah. We're sending you all to the same place. You're all you're all indentured laborers anyway. Nobody's we're, we'll forward your mail. But but doesn't that doesn't that awaken in you at least like some kind of desire to be like, wow, I want to connect some of these missing pieces. Not that you can, right? Like it's not, you know, sometimes it, you kind of go like this is literally a, an impossible mission, but it just becomes like a question mark. Like now I want to quit my job and just find out your original last name. That's what I want to do. Well, we've got yeah. it. We have it in records. My uncle did write a book. Uh, he self-published okay. a book years ago. My late uncle, my 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 dear uncle Vijay, he he wrote as much as he could, and it's is it is it is a wonderful rambling mess that at the time I thought, oh my god, this is unreadable. But after he passed, I was like, oh my god, it's Vijay in print. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. And also, like you have a you know you have at least a part of the story now. That's I do. Kind of yeah. There's documents in there and stuff, but, but this, this look, look at you pulling me off. Who's, whose podcast is this? Apparently it's yours, but that's why we're talking about you. Well, as we talk about my elsewhere story, if, if anyone was doubting, if anyone thought that, that you were just trying to be nice about it by writing it down, no, we we've demonstrated this is absolutely catnip for you. Yes. Did writing your own story, how did that change your relationship to other people's elsewheres? Well, I, I'm mostly usually trying to detect like, where someone is on that journey you know if it's something that they thought about a lot it's something that it really informs their identity or is it something that they don't think about because they're trying to avoid a certain kind of pain there um and so i think i've become like aware of my own boundaries and my own limitations just in terms of hey you can't just like go up to people and be like tell me everything about where you're from um and that comes in practice like when i hear someone um talk up like describe for example having an arabic name I'm like i know that word is arabic the way that you say it is different than how i would say it mm. and all i want to do is like set aside two hours to be like let me teach you how to say the letter ha and 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 they're like i have things to do with my time man we don't need to do this this is just how i say my name and like for me i'm so drawn to that i'm so drawn to the negotiations that people have um between their present and all the things that inform their past and so uh, writing this book was for me a way to at least like get that out of my system, like just like acknowledge that this is a curiosity that I have because I've had to make all kinds of alterations to my own name. So like my name in Sudan was Alamin Saifeddin Alamin. And so um, I was named after my grandfather and Sudan is a patrilineal sort of naming tradition. So your last name is just your dad's name. But when my dad moved here, his name is Saifeddin Alamin. Um, he realized that if he just gave us the family name Elamin, then when I come to Canada, I would be Elamin Elamin, which is preposterous and not a real name to have. Um, and so he sort of graciously moved his own last name to his, his dad's last name, which is Abdul Mahmoud. Um, and he became Zifadine Abdul Mahmoud. And so um, it, he literally changed everything that he knew about the way that he introduces himself. Um, it, in order for me not to become Elamine Elamine. And so in the process, though, I became this new thing, which is Elamine at the Mahmoud in the context of, of Canada. But like, if, you know, if you go to Sudan and you ask about Elamine at the Mahmoud, they'd be like, you want a grandfather from four generations ago? That seems like a weird, you know? Um, and I just think we're all embroiled in these negotiations all the time. And sometimes we're aware of them, sometimes we're not. And sometimes we're just becoming aware of them. And that's like the most fascinating period for me. Yeah. This book can be read all in one go. I read it all in one go, but it can also be dipped into. 
uh, take it out of order, shuffle, but clearly you're a fan of music, but I think specifically you're a fan of albums. And so I wanted to know, as you put these essays together in this book, which you ultimately called a memoir in pieces, were they written in sequence? Um, did you have a bunch and then kind of see gaps in the vibe where you thought, ah, I could use, I could use something crazy here. I could use something heart, heartwarming. <laughs> um, honestly, I, first of all, I love that conception of it. Uh, the way sort of conceiving of this book as like an album. Um, so it was certainly, it was written in verse. It was written um, not at all sort of in sequence. The first essay that I wrote was it became the third essay in the book, which is the essay about um, infinite reach, which is sort of like America's my my relationship with America, um, mm. starting from when they sort of bombed um, a factory that was not that far from my house when we lived in Sudan. Um, that was the first one that I wrote for this whole thing, and then I wrote a chapter on grief. That was the second one that in the in the book I think that comes up ninth or something. But you as you as you kind of go through the process of, of, of writing these pieces, you sort of begin to see where they might fit. Um, the, the essays about the 400 series, specifically the 401 um, highway, um, it's five different essays that sort of keep returning you to the 401 motif throughout the book. So, you know, you, you read a couple of essays and then you come back to this Rhodes piece. But that one was written all at the same time. Um, it was sort of, uh, I finished the Rhodes piece and it was 13,000 words. And I didn't have the guts to put a 13,000 word essay right at the start of the book. I was like, that's too big of an ask. I just can't do that to a person. Uh, it's kind of like putting a 13 minute song right at the start of your album. It's like, you probably wouldn't do that. Um, and so as a result, I ended up kind of breaking it apart at first into you know, two halves, but that wasn't quite working. And then we kind of found that like, some elements of it lined up really nicely chronologically with um, the rest of the essays I was starting to grapple with. And that's why you see it sort of in its current iteration, which is five different um, essays, five different essays, all about, all, sorry, five different um, segments of the same essay. Mm. Do you have a favorite? Ooh, a favorite. Um, I think emotionally, uh, Rhodes Part Four is my favorite one. It was one of the hardest ones to write, um, just because for me, trying to grapple my mind around that one is sort of like about after having gone through all this pain with my parents. It's the one where my dad um, makes this incredible apology, and we get on the same page um, in, in terms of the, the stuff that we were disagreeing with. But I sort of knew that. I was I had a lot of pressure on that essay because that's the one where I sort of try to give them a redemption arc, mm -hmm. um, and and I and I think it landed okay. Like I think you sort of landed with the emotional uh, sort of heft that I was trying to give it, you know. Um, so that one meant a lot to me. Um, one of the last essays written for the book is one that is sort of centered around nascent Sudanese cinema moment and the ways that I feel distance from Sudan right now and how I wish I was a little bit closer. And I'm really proud of that one because it, it sort of came together at the very, very end. Um, and then the prologue and epilogue, um, which uh, it's similar to the Rhodes idea, the prologue and epilogue, um, that, that was the last thing that was written for the book. Um, but I, after finishing it, um, it was supposed to be the last piece of the book. And I was like, you know what? This is 
I like this as a statement that opens the book. And so we mm. sort of literally split it right in half mm. and put um, one half of it at the start and the other half of it kind of at the, at the, at the end. Um, I'm, I, I'm revealing all of this chopping, all of this like rearranging <laughs> that we did as we sort of were trying to grapple our minds, you know, through how this book will look as a shape. Yeah. I'm going to tell you my favorite and it is uh, it's running down the wing. Hey, it starts with a celebration of uh, Liverpool forward Muhammad Salah. Yes. Does a little explainer about um, calls to prayer in different places that Islam has practiced uh, everywhere from, you know, where you can, you know, navigate streets blind uh, by the sound coming from minarets to, to uh, where the, the call to prayer would be inaudible if you were on the wrong side of the parking lot from, from the mosque. Yes. Can you tell me about writing that one? How did running down the wing pull together for you? Well, man, that one was a, I would say a joy to pull together um, because I knew that I wanted to talk about my relationship with being Muslim, my relationship with how my faith has shaped my life, but also my, I think now kind of complicated relationship with the faith in the sense that like, I don't think I'm being a particularly good Muslim most of the time. And I don't know what that means for me. I sort of still have to sit down and kind of unpack that and return to um, return to my faith and say like, what are we doing here? Where, uh, how closely do I identify with this? And when I put those things together, um, a bunch of things popped up. One was how, how jealous I feel um, of younger Muslims who have a role model like Muhammad Salah, um, a visibly being the best at what he does, the best football player on earth. I will not be taking questions at this time. He just is, you know. Hot sports stakes here on Kobo and Conversation. <laughs> That's right. Um, but also, you know, returning to moments like watching, uh, watching 24 with my dad and um, sensing that like, hey, like they, these people, these people, whoever's making the show has a particular slant about Muslims that they're trying to sort of get across. Um, and so all of these different emotional markers about my relationship with faith kind of came together. And, and I knew that Muhammad Salah would be sort of like the frame for it because it's extraordinary to me that um, as someone who came to Canada just before 9-11 um, and experienced the shift in how people view Muslims in this country and um, the conversation about Islamophobia in this country, um, as someone who's received letters from strangers were like, you know, your faith is terrible. Um, as someone who, like literally like someone made, and you can watch this on YouTube right now, um, a like 40 minute YouTube video that is just basically cutting together a bunch of panel appearances that I made um, on mm. the news. And basically like she would pause after every minute that I would speak and she would say, look, like this is all evidence that he's like a Muslim sleeper agent. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm amazed that young people who get an opportunity to see someone as visible as Muhammad Salah be what he is. Um, and so I wanted to contrast the two experiences because I wish I had that so that I could sort of like at least steady myself and be like, no, 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 we are this. Because I, I don't think you can, um, I think you can have a much clearer idea of who you are if you have representations of who you are and you are able to see those clearly. Um, and so um, I wanted to, explore all of these emotional terrains and running down the wing is where we settle. Well, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I recommend, look, I recommend readers read the whole thing through, but like when you get to running down the wing, like make sure you got time to, to go all the way. Like don't, there's no interrupting that one. Just take it all the way. 
I wanted to ask you about the first essay too, because it frames something interesting as you, as you talked about, you know, coming to, uh, coming to the West, uh, right after nine 11, you, you went through, uh, this experience, um, that a lot of folks from parts of Africa and Asia come to, uh, go through when they land someplace in Canada. And, and that is finding yourself slotted into racial categories that exist in your destination, mm-hmm. but they didn't exist back home. Mm-hmm you're in a category that you have no experience with, but that your new place has all kinds of experience with and expects you to uh, occupy. And and you write, you write about the nice Sudanese kids here, your parents introduced you to who like, you know, thrust Nas and Lauren Hill at you as like, this is your, well, welcome to being black. These are our instructors for the 101 (laughs) course. Exactly. I wanted to ask though, because, because you didn't touch on this and I was curious about it was, did you have any sense of how your parents handled this transition um into blackness at a th- like in adulthood you don't have time for new identities like you're you're, you're busy you're busy you gotta go to work you gotta go to work you got kids to raise do you have a sense of of their own um relationship with this this category they got thrust into well i think the my the thing is my parents also inherited the same history that i inherited of the shadism and colorism of sudan right yeah. um which is to say that like where i grew up we didn't conceive of ourselves as black. We conceived of black as something else. You know, yeah. like the darker skinned folk who tend to come from South Sudan tend to be Christian, tend to be poorer um, because of like a significant racism and um, economic discrimination. Um, so I think for them, they found it odd. You know, like they're like, we're well, no, no, no. We've been to a place that like has black people, and like this is yeah. we are not that. But that's basically like how their relationship was with it at the time. I don't know if they spent time trying to migrate themselves into like this inherited category of saying, okay, if we're black, let's figure out what that means. Like, cause like you said, they got to go to work. Um, I think uh, for them, they just kind of found it amusing, but you know, they also came at, at ages that are like old enough for them to sort of hold on to their Sudanese identities and mm-hmm. have that be mostly their their guide through this world i think they identify more as immigrants than they do anything else Mm. um particularly my mom you know like she is very quick to sort of get to the part of the conversation where she tells you that she's from sudan like she loves (laughs) um and i love and i love watching her do it but that's not you know it's she doesn't um i don't sense in her like a deep interest in sort of like the black story in canada i don't think she Mm. sort of identifies with it right now Hmm. You alluded to this earlier, and, and I wanted to ask about this um, further connected with your parents, a chapter where you write about, about a break in your family over your choice of life partner, yeah. who, who is your, your wife, Emily. As I read that, I thought that must have not only been hard to write, uh, just to go there, to, to chart it back out, to be in that emotional space and put the narrative together. Um, but it also occurred to me as, as, you, as I was reading it, that, that my hunch is that families, families where it can be said things like, you know, if you do this, you're no son of mine, where that, where the line in the sand can be drawn that there's, there's a strong correlation between families where, where that can be in the discourse and families who do not want their business aired. (laughs) Yes. Is there an earlier draft where you were like, no, go raw. It's all in here. And then you like pulled it back of like, no, this has to live in the world among people I love. How did you manage this? 
I certainly wouldn't say gracefully. I don't think I don't <laughs> think I've managed it gracefully. Um, I would say uh, that very early on in the process, I told my editor, like, look, there is a version of this book I can write when my parents are alive. And there's a version I can write when my parents are not here. Mm. My parents are both here. I have mm. a duty of care to both of them. And I don't know if I'm up to sort of revealing everything, revealing all the extents of the pain that we went through. You know, I don't, I don't think that's something that I'm comfortable doing. Having said that, though, I was encouraged to own my own pain, which is to say, this is something that I went through that was really difficult for me. And I'm going to do my best to render them with honesty, render them with uh, the least amount of judgment possible, um, and an attempt to actually understand them and where they're coming from. And that, that for me, like, was a process, right? It's sort of like, let me try to understand why my parents behaved in the ways that they did whether it's about my relationship with Emily or just like how they were when I was growing up in Kingston and they felt, you know, they felt like, we were like okay, you, you're gonna go out with some friends, you better be home by like seven. Um, and all of those were emotional sites that I wanted to return to, to try to put myself in their position. Mm. And that doesn't come until quite late in the book, I think, perhaps it should have come earlier, but there is, a, there is a part where I sort of try to explain how the idea of the immigrant parent capital I, capital P, yeah. is like this construct that is really co the collision of a whole bunch of forces. Like, you know, I knew the racism that my parents experienced. Um, I knew the um, class anxiety that my parents experienced, the, um, the struggle with money that my parents experienced. And all of those, all those things kind of formed together to give them, um, you know, uh, a feeling of lack of control and the only thing that they can assert control over is like me my dating choices my um enmeshment with sort of canadian society which is something that they could you know sort of say no to i think when i talked to them about it later um i was like you know i wish we had this rich emotional language 15 years ago but we didn't um and i would like to tell the story i would like to tell where the story ended because i think it's a good ending i mm -hmm. like where we are now mm -hmm. um but in order to do that you have to tell some unpleasant parts mm -hmm. yeah among the many things you enmeshed yourself in and your, mm -hmm. your your parents could not hold you back from pop culture <laughs> yes you write though about um not just being into stuff but being into stuff that brought you into communities these these things were um you know you were successful at writing what i will call for the listener's benefit uh uh and to to my chagrin among any listeners who are who are super into pro wrestling uh it was pro wrestling fanfic right i know there are proper names for it i'm trying to help out the listener who doesn't know this it yeah. was pro wrestling fanfic and you're That's really good at it you got a following like this led you to some some notoriety yeah additionally the oc showed up mm -hmm. And you found that being into that allowed you to connect with, with others as well. This was like a, uh, this was a medium in which you could, you could operate. Yeah. This stuff really opened up the world to you. And I wonder how the process of maturing into an adult, how you've charted that from being a kid who knew all the cool stuff, or at least enough <laughs> cool stuff that your plate was full of it and your, and, and, and your social calendar was full as well because of all the friends you'd made through, through the stuff you were on top of. First, let me note that you're calling pro wrestling cool, and that's a wild thing that no one's ever done. You know, that's a, that's a, that is new terrain for people who are into pro wrestling. Um, 
Yeah, I think I take pop culture seriously. You know, I think I take pop culture seriously in a way that maybe a lot of other people in my life don't. Um, it's also part of what I do for a living. I'm a culture mm -hmm. writer for a living. And it's helped me a lot taking pop culture seriously because when I was younger, pop culture was sort of a key to understanding the place that I have arrived. And by that, I mean like literally sitting down by the radio and taking notes and trying to be like, okay, this lady's singing about being like a bird and I don't know what that means. And I'd like to understand why this song is so popular and why it's being played every eight minutes or so. Um, and just the curiosity of like, there's something about this really working. There's something about this is really connecting. Why is this thing connecting? That's the same muscle that I exercise now for a living. You know, that's the same muscle that I exercise now and I have to write about a new, at a new TV show that's really popping that people are, you know, being really receptive to. Um, it's the same work, right? Which is the idea of what is it about this thing that's connecting? Um, I would say that at first it was a necessity for me to sort of spend time in pop culture because I knew nothing else. So I was like, okay, let me turn on the TV and try to learn what these people are about. Um, and that was literally just like a decoder ring at the start, you know? Um, but then uh, as time went on and sort of became my career, it also became um, part of what I do for a living is just try to say, this is popular and I think the reason it's connecting is because of this larger cultural trend. I'm very grateful for that early education because I think it set me up perfectly to do this for a living now. Mm -hmm. um, the essay about new metal fascinates me. <laughs> and it fascinates me not just as, because it's easy to be a detractor of new metal. Yes, it is. And what I thought was really interesting about it and, and admirable um, was I think a lot of us have adolescent experiences of finding community through questionable taste in music and other things. Yeah. Like the, I put those things away. Most of us just put those things away, lock them up tight. We outgrow them. When did you realize that you were being called upon uh, in your book or elsewhere to, to correct the historical record on new <laughs> metal? <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's a, it's a form of honesty more than anything else. It's like, can I in good conscience put out this book without talking about how significant a role new metal has played in my life? Because mm. that was my first community. Those were my first people, right? Um, it was a way for me to speak a language to other people when I didn't really understand them very well. Um, it opened a lot of doors for me. One significant door that it opened for me is um, it gave me permission to be mad at my parents. And of course, like later it turned out that new metal was only about be mad at your parents but like no one knew that at the time you know um and so for me that was sort of like felt empowering but also it felt empowering to sort of um return to that moment and say you know what we don't have to think the music was good we just have to acknowledge that it housed a lot of emotions for people it made it safe to go through that period of time um and i think sometimes that's the biggest thing a piece of music can accomplish it can, do, it can do more than be good. It could uh, house you and keep you safe. Um, you could drop a guitar to drop detuning and then like make a bunch of noise and people kind of go like, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. And that's, that's powerful. And I don't think it's something to be, you know, underestimated. Having said that, you gotta like, you gotta say new metal helped me a lot 
but when you say it, you got to say it with like a bit of shame. You're like, I'm, I'm sorry to be like this, but <laughs> I was there and this was my musical moment. And I, it was something that I needed um, at the time and it met me where I needed it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In your book, In Son of Elsewhere, for the most part, other books are not foregrounded. I think uh, with the exception of the Sudanese novelist uh, Tayeb Saleh's uh, Season of Migration to the North, of which you speak very admiringly, what are the other books you were reading as a kid or as a young man, perhaps, uh, you know, between between acts at Lollapalooza, um, (laughs) the stuff that, uh, you know, that maybe helped you refine your your wrestling fanfic craft so so well? (laughs) Well, I, listen, I, growing up, I actually just read a lot of um, these action adventures that were published by this um, Egyptian author named Nabil Farouk. Um, and basically, they were all about this Edham Sabri who's like, just take James Bond and make a Muslim an Egyptian. And like, you got Edham Sabri. Um, except like growing up and then realizing later that like somehow all the villains were. Um, like there was like there's like a tone not not a hidden tone of anti-Semitism. Like Israel was like a, occasionally to kind of constantly one of the enemies of <laughs> of these books, which is like oh that's something to think about. Um, but uh, these these books um, for me were like a significant touch point. I think books that shaped me in terms of wanting to write. Um, I don't think I wanted to write mm. seriously until I met. Um, Rebecca Solnit's Field Guide to Getting Lost. Um, mm. Rebecca Solnit, for me, is a deeply, deeply important writer. I think she's one of the most important writers working today. Um, and if you read A Field Guide to Getting Lost, um, which is sort of a collection of essays around the idea of getting lost and sometimes getting physically lost, the things that we lose, um, the ideas of losing yourself, the different ways that you can lose yourself, losing yourself in a good way, losing yourself in a bad way. Um, and also the historical conception of how we thought about loss. Um, you read that book, and I think you come away with a different understanding of what books can do. You know, mm. um, for me, I sort of put that down, and I thought this is an extraordinary work of just connecting um, ideas and themes in a way that I hadn't encountered before in my life. Um, and so Field Got to Getting Lost was just like a deeply, deeply important book to me. Um, and... From there on, I've had a few other books that deeply shaped me. You know, Zadie Smith's Change in My Mind is a really important book to me also. That's Mm -hmm. another collection of essays. Um, And Zadie Smith has this like very elegant thing where she talks about, you know, it's basically a bunch of essays about how she changed her mind about something. Um, And she goes through a journey of saying, you know, I thought this book was terrible. And then it turns out actually is one of the most incredible, most most important books to me. Um, uh, In terms of recent books, uh, Hanif Abdul-Rakib's They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us uh, yeah. which, um, his collection of essays um, is also like another profoundly important book to me as well because mm. what these writers gave me was freedom you know freedom to imagine things that you can do um, there, I think there's an essay in, in Hanif's book where he doesn't use any periods there's just every sentence ends with an ant um, and you kind of look at it and go like wait, I didn't know you could do that. And it's like literally just the freedom of the thing existing enables you to go, I don't know, let's try it. Let's, let's figure out, you know, let's, let's take some chances on the page and see if we like the result or not. Um, and so those, I would say like those books were 
in many ways the godparents to this book. They're sort of um, the parents, the, the 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 books that birthed this book were were those books. Um, Anif's book, Rebecca Solnit's book, and Zadie Smith's. Right. Yeah. And there's a through line to, to, to Hanif Abdurraqib as well in the um, his his unabashed love of emo. Um, yeah. It's another malign genre. We, we had him on the show in January um, and uh, uh, talking about uh, his book, uh, Little Devil in America. Yeah. And um, we didn't get to talk as much about My Chemical Romance as I think we, we should have. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's another one of his great pieces. Yeah, uh, that truly, truly made me feel like I was missing out on something. As, as your essay about new metal made me feel like I had misjudged um, uh, several, several acts. That's the hope. The hope is that you come away and be like, was there more to that than I thought that there was? And I think you're right. Hanif does accomplish that with My Chemical Romance. He definitely like, I think Hanif's pieces on Carly Rae Jepsen were turning points for a lot of people. I'm oh, totally. Right. You know, um, in terms of people going... Oh, it's another pop artist. Oh, no, no, there's something different. There's more here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're on the precipice of this turning into a Carly Rae Jepsen fan club because I, I think I've seen on Twitter that you are you are an unabashed fan. I am an Hell unabashed yeah. fan. Yes. Um, yeah. So, but we're going to, I'm, I'm pulling it back. Pulling it back. <laughs> the restraint is incredible. With all of my strength. Yes. Uh, I need to ask you, as, I, as you've sung these love songs for, for the 401, um, you you are the father of a young child. Can I ask you, what's your relationship with long drives now? <laughs> Great question. Um, I depends on the playlist that we have on. Okay. Um, and by this, I mean like my daughter loves long drives. We drive. Uh, we drive to. I don't know if it's a long drive. We drive to Hamilton a lot. That's like a fifty. That's drive. long with a with a kid. That's with a with a youngin. She she loves that drive. She's like a big fan of of that trip. Um, I have a lot of playlists where it's like very fragile piece of like, there'll be a song for me and then a song for her and a song for me and a song for her. Um, and that's very crucial to our relationship in the car. Um, she, I, I think for the longest time I tried to sort of keep the car as like, well, in the car, there's only music that I like available. Um, but once you sort of break that seal, it kind of becomes like, okay, it becomes her car in a sense. She, she will... The first thing she does when she sits in her car seat is like declare what song she wants to begin the ride with. And I'm like, all right, like I'm on it. Let me, let me go cue that song up. Um, and so I think she has the same kind of relationship to long drives as me, which is like, she kind of feels comfortable in them. I'm also someone who can uh, sleep anywhere. Um, and same. Car, car sleep is, is key. And um, I, since I'm the primary driver of our family, I don't get a chance to sleep on the road a lot. Um, but she more than makes up for it. So I would say she's, she's a fan of drive. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you can still love, love the long rides. I have a meta question about the book. And that is that, that as we just said, you you have a young child. You are a young man. Well, thank you. Your career is ascendant. You've got stuff going on. There are irons and several fires. You could have waited to write this book, you know, when you were, you know, dusting your order of Canada medal or whatever, or the decorative spoon or whatever you get when, when you get, Do you know something about the future that I don't, is this how this works? Okay. All right. All right. If you want to sound prophetic, you got to say some crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you decide to write this now? Why did you decide to write the version of this book that can live in the world where, where, where your parents can read it versus the one where, you know, any, anyone who may object is, is gone. Uh, 
Great question. I think the answer for me is that he was cooked. Uh, and by that, I mean, like, I, I, I sort of felt ready to, to sort of tackle this parameter of subjects, you know? Mm. Um, I think I would have wanted to read this book 15 years ago. I would have wanted to read a book that sort of gave me permission to live in an in-between space and not have to worry about claiming one or the other. I would have wanted to read a book about how it's okay and maybe even understandable to have felt like you needed to put blackness on the side or Muslimness on the side or immigrantness on the side. Um, and because I think I felt a lot of shame about that at the time. And now I'm like, oh, I was just doing the thing that I needed to do to make the day easier, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so in that regard, um, yeah, I think you could have waited, but I also think that there are, there's an audience that maybe could have, you could use it now, you know, mm. it, it, it might find them now. And if it does, then hopefully we'll sort of illuminate for them or with them um, that part of their story. And the other thing about it is that like, I don't know, I think I, in, I'm not someone who processes the recent past very well. I think I need like a 10 year distance. Like by and large, most of this book takes place before 2012. Mm. Um, with the exception of like maybe four stories, four or five stories in there that sort of take place after that. Um, I don't think I could write about something that happened two years ago very clearly because my story about it hasn't solidified that well. Um, and I think it would probably be a good pace to be like, in 10 years, I've sort of gathered enough dust to be like, let me try to like make a like a little bowl out of this or something. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't think you can... You know, I think once you feel a moment has approached and enough has kind of like solidified together, it's just good to sort of try to um, gather it all up in one place. And who knows how I'll feel about any of this in 10 years. Maybe I'll be like, oh, all my thoughts about that version of me were completely incorrect. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. like, I was very careful to sort of investigate some of these thoughts and go, you know what, has it been enough time that my story about this thing is solidified? And I think so. I think that's where these stories are at. Um, but who knows? Who knows where, where I'll be in 10 years in terms of um, how I think about these stories. You write in one of the essays that one of the functions of language is to build little bridges. I think you, you write, uh, I think I've, I've quoted you correctly here. I make some sounds and you feel seen and understood and less lonely. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's how the book made me feel. And so thank you. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for joining me on Kobo in Conversation. And uh and it it was it was great to not feel so lonely reading the book. Um and it was great to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for spending time with the book. Thank you for the gift of close reading. That itself is something that uh no one should take for granted. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> I I, le I learned it in Kingston, uh, Ontario at Queen's University doing an MA. Hey. So there you go. A good place to learn things, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> I have been speaking with Elamine Abdel Mahmoud, author of Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces. You can find it and all the books we talked about at Kobo and Conversations home, kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes just to make it easy. Uh, catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Leave us stars, leave us reviews. Tell us you're out there. It helps other people like you, like us, find it. And then we can be readers together, less lonely. Kobo and Conversation is produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. This time around, it's hosted by me as well. Thank you for listening. What's your favorite car of the race on? Oh, 
God. Um, I mean, I love, I love all that because of the, like the blood orange thing going on in that, yeah. but like making the most of the night is just mm-hmm. like, is, oh, is like, right. Cause the syncopation is just, yeah. it's like the first listen through is like, when, are the, when, when, when is it, when does each phrase land? Oh my God. It's yeah. like, and there's the, the percussion in the middle. Like you can imagine you could, you could do a marching band arrangement of it. Like yeah. with the, with the, with the drumming in, in between the, like, it's, it's wonderful. It, yeah. it, it, uh, it's, it's glorious. See, we did it. You, you we were on the precipice and you were like, <laughs> let's go over the precipice. We got to do it. Yes. Yes. There's a little bit of Carly Rae. Talk. What's your favorite Carly Rae song? <sighs> God, I think it changes with the seasons, but right now right. it's, uh, right now it's too much. I'm a big, too much guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Deep groove on that. The pocket on that's just endless. Yeah. Huge. And also like, and her delivery is perfect on every line like this you can sort of feel the desperation and the excitement exacting that exasperation in every line like there's something about her as a vocalist in that song that's like you feel her presence in a way where i don't think you feel it on other songs and so i i, I returned it too much like it's really to make a really magnetic song mm. but i'm going to listen to making the most of the night immediately after this episode. 